Shalom, Mishboka, and welcome to this week's Kadima podcast. We're going to shift gears and do something a little different today. Uh, this is still relegated to leadership, but it's going to give some background understanding as to why we're suffering all this vitriolic separation, division, racial inequality here in this uh, great nation of America. And this all filters back to the one new man of Ephesians chapter 2. And this is the critical, I believe, prophetic destiny of America that is yet to be fulfilled. And I want to walk this through with you because it's going to be the answer for what's happening in our nation today. But if we don't understand, if it doesn't get into our kishkas, we're not going to be able to walk this out and fulfill God's destiny for us as a nation. So who are Messianic Jews? You know, I'm a Messianic rabbi and we have a Messianic congregation here in Virginia. Messianic Jews by birth who have received and accepted the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus as the Mashiach, who came first 2,000 years ago and will return in the near future. Israel and the Jewish people are the only people group in the world whose identity, culture, and government is defined by a relationship with God. God created biblical culture. Messianic Jews practice Messianic Judaism, an apostolic, prophetic, scriptural end-time movement by maintaining our biblically Jewish culture and lifestyle centered on the teachings and salvation of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. Jesus, his 12 disciples, all Messianic Jews. That 120 net upper room who experienced the mighty roar and outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that Shavuot 2,000 years ago were Jews who were in Jerusalem for the biblical feast of Shavuot or Pentecost. Every time you read from Peter, Ephesians, Timothy, James, Colossians, Corinth, Galatians, John, and Matthew, to name a few, you're being discipled by those first century Messianic Jews. These Jewish followers of Yeshua would turn a majority of the known world 2,000 years ago to faith in the Jewish Messiah using only the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The Bible as you read it today was still over 300 plus years in the future. And they did this as outlined uh, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. Identity, and this is the key in all this, is crucial. Knowing who you are allows you to fulfill your destiny in the kingdom of God. Shaul or Paul, that fiery Jewish evangelist who ministered to the Gentiles, gave a profound analogy in Romans 11 regarding who Messianic Israel is, the Jew and Gentile purpose, and the importance and result of believing Jew and believing Gentile reconciling together as one. Romans 11 is often not talked about in most churches, most congregations, but it's a key fundamental foundation of the future of eschatology of where we're going. In Romans 11, verses 11 through 29, and I'm going to slowly mold through this as we unpack this now. Paul said in verse 11, in that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? And he's talking about the Jewish people here. He goes on to say, heaven forbid. Quite the contrary, it is by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. So we pause right there for a second because this is laying out the destiny of Gentile Messianic believers or even those who profess to be Christians. The purpose of their being grafted into this Jewish rooted olive tree is to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy and to receive the Messiah, not to provoke us, 
but to provoke us to jealousy, to bring the salvation of Messiah Yeshua to the Jewish people, that we may see the revival of the land and the people. Because when Israel saved, they will say, Baruch Hashem Adonai, as Yeshua said in the end of Matthew 23, they will call him back as the lost son of the house of Israel, as it says in Zechariah, and he will rule over this Messianic reign from his throne in that holy city of Jerusalem. This is critical. Verse 12 goes on to say, Moreover, if their stumbling, and this is the Jewish people, is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel is being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles, is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring to them? So if our stumbling, if our being placed in a temporary condition less favored than that of believing Gentiles, is bringing riches and wealth and great blessings to the Gentiles, how much greater when we are restored back into this Jewish-rooted olive tree? Verse 15 of Romans 11 says, For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. This is absolutely critical. Let me pause here um, because what we're seeing now is a slow dying of the Christian church. Christianity itself is in retreat. And why is that? Because it's been separated from the Jewish rooted olive tree. Let me read one more verse here. Then we're going to start unpacking some of this. He said in verse 17, but if some of the, now remind you, we're talking about an olive tree. And and the issue with this is most of us are not farmers anymore. This was written to an agrarian society who everyone had their own vineyard. They had their own wine press. They had their own olives. They pressed their own olive oil. This is how people sustained themselves. Some were fishermen. Now, in our largely uh, urban societies, both here in America and around the world, few don't understand the grafting in process that we do to fruit trees or to olive trees. So Paul is laying out this dynamic that the kingdom, if you will, is a Jewish-rooted olive tree. And there's natural branches from this tree, which are the Jewish people, and there's grafted-in branches, which are the Gentile people. And so he's explaining to this that if some of the natural branches, verse 17, meaning the Jewish people, were broken off, and you, a wild olive graft, he's speaking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among them, and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast, he said in verse 18, as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. So you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On one hand, severity toward those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them in. So let's talk about this analogy for a few minutes. The groomed tree, the olive tree, is Israel. The wild olive tree are the Gentiles. And to understand this agrarian parable here, if you wanted to expand your crops, if you wanted more olives, if you wanted to increase your production, land is at a limited basis in the tiny nation of Israel. 
wild olive trees are an olive that's picked up from a groomed tree, a cultured tree. The bird eats the flesh and the seed is passed through the bird in its own little fertilizer packet dropped in a body somewhere. And the, the seed will grow and it becomes a wild olive tree. But wild olive trees don't produce fruit. Only the cultured farm trees do. So if this farmer wants to increase his production, he'll take his cultured tree in his olive garden. He'll cut some of the natural branches off and he doesn't throw them out. Is God done with Israel? As Paul was saying in Romans 3, heaven forbid. Those natural branches that are cut off, God didn't dispense with them, but they lay dormant at the base of the tree. He will then go out and find a wild olive tree, and he'll cut two, three branches off that and bring them back to his cultured tree. The first thing he does is graft them back into the stump. And what's important with this is this is done with great surgical precision. The hole that's drilled into the tree must be the exact same diameter as that branch. If it's, the hole is too small, the branch can't get in. If the hole is too big, the branch won't take the graft. So it's got to be done with great precision. This grafting into the tree represents the salvation of Yeshua. And this was done with great precision, with great accuracy. God sent his son 2,000 years ago that you could be grafted supernaturally into this Jewish-rooted olive tree. When those wild branches are grafted in, Something supernatural happens, and this is relating right back to the scriptures we just read at the beginning of this. Because the DNA of that branch doesn't match, and this is important because in humans, we do uh, transplants. We could do a heart transplant, kidney transplant, liver transplant. Even though the blood may match, you, every one of you, has your own unique DNA that no one else has. So the minute they put some body part from someone else into you, your body immediately knows this isn't mine. And your body tries to reject it and literally push it out of your body. Someone who's received an organ transplant has to take medications for the rest of their life that your body won't reject that organ. When we take this wild olive branch, the nations, the Gentiles are grafted into this tree. The, the, the groomed olive tree doesn't attempt to reject it but because the DNA doesn't match, when the branch blossoms in a, the photosynthesis, it can't feed the root because the DNA doesn't match. The root has to force feed the branch to keep it alive in this grafting process. And so this is, this is critical. Because the DNA doesn't match, the root has to force feed the wild branch. And so I want you to understand this, that if the native branch isn't brought back into this tree, the tree will eventually perish. It will die because the root isn't being fed. This is critical. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more so will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is critical. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but is now revealed, verse 25, so that you won't imagine you know more than you actually do. It is this stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. Maturity, this means in the Greek. And it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. This is phenomenal. How's that going to happen? Well, first of all, as we read in the beginning of this chapter, the native tree receives these grafted in wild branches to provoke 
Israel to jealousy, to bring us, the Jewish people, to Messiah. So what about the native branch? Well, for three years, the Gentile branch, the wild branch, remains grafted into the root. From the stores of the root, it force feeds this branch, but the branch can't feed the root. At the end of three years, the farmer then takes the uh, native branches, picks them up and grab. They've been dormant now. He grafts them back into the Jewish-rooted olive tree, the cultivated tree. And of course, something supernaturally happens when you do this because the branch that came from that tree, the DNA matches. So immediately when the branch blooms, it begins feeding the root because the DNA matches. Now get this. Why was the native branch grafted in to provoke Israel to jealousy? I actually have the documentation from olive orchards in America. This grafting process, when this happens, you've got this native branch grafted back into the tree. You've got this wild olive tree branch grafted in. The two now into the same tree, the tree realizes there's two different DNAs here, and it provokes the tree to jealousy. It takes the fruit, the food, the photosynthesis from the native branch, the roots now being fed. Now, the root supernaturally begins feeding both the branch that is wild and the branch that is native. And when this DNA merge and match together in the tree, something supernatural happens. The Gentile, the foreign branch that never produced fruit, will now produce fruit. The native branch also produces fruit. And in this process of provoking the jealousy, there's a thousand-fold harvest from the, this tree previously had done before the wild branch was grafted back in. This is exactly what Paul is defining. He says that the stoniness has come to a degree upon Israel. Why? Because the branches were dormant until it's grafted back into this tree. What is that grafting process? But it's the receipt of believing in, trusting in Messiah Yeshua. And when that happens, then all Israel will be saved. The tree is provoked to jealousy, and now there's a thousand-fold harvest. What did it say in the beginning? It will be life from the dead. He said in verse 29, For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. By ingrafting, Gentiles become grafted into the promise. They become joint heirs and partakers of the greater house of Israel. They become joint citizens with us. And in this, it creates a thousandfold harvest. It is life from the dead. It's the John 17 moment that the world will know it will be the greatest apostolic move of God we've experienced in over 2,000 years. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17 said, All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to bring you back again into fear. On the contrary, you received the Spirit who makes us sons and by whose power we cry out, Abba, that is, dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our own spirits that we are children of God. And if we are children, there were also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with the Messiah, provided we are suffering with him in order also to be glorified with him. This is the culmination of Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 15. And what I'm laying out here, Mishpacha, is vision to where the greater body is going. There's a new wine being poured out right now. It's the one new man wine, but it requires new wine skin. So we have to understand the foundation of this because of those who are listening now, we can't move forward 
as church the way it's been for the last 1,900 years. We can't move forward as the Messianic movement the way it's been for the last 115 years, but we have to bind together and come together as new wine, but we've got to have a new wine skin. That new wine skin is the one new man. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 15. Again, this is Shaul Paul. He so eloquently reveals this and talks about this. He talks about the secret mystery that's once hidden, but is now being revealed, this one new man. In verse 14, he says, For he himself, Yeshua, is our shalom. He has broken down the mechitzah, the division, the dividing wall which divided us. He says earlier in this chapter, the Gentiles were once far off, estranged, without God, without hope. But they've been brought near now by the shedding of Messiah's blood. And Yeshua, he himself is that shalom. He's tore down that wall, that mechitzah, which divided us by destroying, verse 15, in his own body, the enmity occasioned by the Torah with his commands as set forth in the form of ordinances. You know, what, what does this mean? I know some of the King James translations say that Jesus nailed the Old Testament to the cross, but that's not what he's, he's unpacking here. What he's saying is there was enmity because we had God, the Jewish people, we had Torah, the Gentiles did not. And so there's enmity, there's jealousy that arose over this. In fact, in the Second Temple period, Gentiles weren't even allowed to approach the temple, even though Solomon, when he dedicated the first temple, said just the opposite, that when the Gentiles hear of God's glory and his power, and they come and sacrifice to him, that God would receive their sacrifices. Yet by the Second Temple period, We've got walls built and a stone that says Gentiles can't pass this point. Uh, at least they suffered death. That's a rough translation. But we've got the court of the women. They couldn't approach it. Yet we read in the Mishkan that the women were working there. And the 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 their brass mirrors made the brass lavern. So, well, you know, we, we see this prostitution of what God desires. We see Yeshua coming back to restore God's plan all along. And by his bloody sacrificial death, Yeshua destroyed in his own body the enmity, the jealousy occasioned by the Torah with his commands in the form of ordinances and mitzvahs. And why did he do this? It goes on in verse 15 to say he did this in order to create a union with himself from the two groups. Okay, how many groups? Yeah, you heard it, two. There's not black, white, Asian, Hispanic, First Nation. There's only two people groups God sees and has nothing to do with culture or color. He sees two people, Jews and Gentiles. His only metric is the relationship of his creation with him. As a Jewish people, we were given the oracles of God. God gave us the mission to reveal his glory to the nations. We became his first fruits, but not the only fruits. He desires that not only we be reconciled to him, but the Gentiles as well. He did this in order to create a union with himself, verse 15, from the two groups, a single new humanity, and thus make shalom. Listen, the mystery in this, and this is why it's so incredibly important for us today in America, because this word, thus make shalom, in the Greek is irene, and the first understanding, the first description of this is a state of national tranquility. 